Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? A Fall of Snow by James Turner. It happens every year about Christmas time. I have only to go into a shop to buy my Christmas cards, and there is bound to be one of boys tobogganing in deep snow. Rather old-fashioned, I suppose, though whether there are fashions in snowfalls, I don't know. Nevertheless, to me, these cards bring it all back. There's generally a farmhouse in the background, an open gate with a robin in his crimson winter coat, great swags of snow on the hedgerows. In the centre of the picture... These two boys are flying downhill, waving their hands, their faces like red apples. Of course, it is an idealised, sort of Dickensian picture. For one thing, I'm certain, the boys careering downhill in the picture would never have had the time to wave. They would have been clinging too tightly to the toboggan. Further, it is an ideal Christmas picture, at least for my part of the country, Cornwall where we rarely get enough snow to make a snowman, let alone toboggan. There had only been one year since I've lived in Cornwall when the snow was so thick that I was able actually to go onto the beach in the bay near my home and make a snowball and throw it into the sea. It was 1963, that very bad winter, and what I did must, I feel, be some sort of record, so that these kind of Christmassy pictures are pleasant enough to send to a friend, but scarcely real. Yet what I remember when I see such a card is that it did once happen to me. It did once become very real indeed. And the two boys in that faraway real picture are David, my cousin, and myself. Of course, it's not so much the picture of two boys tobogganing that causes me even today to shiver slightly. It is the nature of fear itself. For fear is a very odd thing. I mean that now, today, when I'm so much older, I'm not in the least afraid of snow. It's merely a nuisance that has to be cleared away from the front door. It means cold weather, which I can't abide. Yet I'm still afraid of what happened so long ago, in that snowfall in East Anglia. But then, that Christmas of 1922, when my uncle invited me to spend the holiday at his home near Orford in Suffolk, snow was very much a novelty to me. It's difficult to explain exactly. Most childhood fears are when you look back at them from middle age. But when I remember that fear each year, I can only explain it by saying that something was waiting for me behind the snowstorm. Was it, I have often wondered, because I was fifteen and young for my age? Was it because snow was so great a novelty to me? Whereas to David, who lived all the year in East Anglia, and therefore knew the land well, as well as being used to snow, nothing happened. It really began when I arrived at my uncle's house. I had gone straight from school instead of going back to Cornwall, since my parents had gone to New York on business. It seemed odd at first to be going to Liverpool Street Station rather than to Paddington. When I left Sussex, the sun was shining, but the sky gradually clouded over, and by the time I had crossed London and the train left Liverpool Street, a light fall of snow covered the station roof. I was thrilled. If snow did come in any quantity, this was going to be a Christmas to remember. My uncle's car was waiting for me at Ipswich. 
I felt very grand being whisked through the town and into the lanes through Woodbridge and past the lonely farmhouses towards Orford. Although this was Christmas week, no one else but me and the chauffeur seemed to be about in that desolate landscape until we passed the old and secret wood of Staverton, where St. Edmund is reputed to have been martyred by the Danes. Then a couple, a man and a woman, emerged from beneath those gnarled and twisted oak and holly trees, with great bunches of red berries in their arms. It was a further sign of a good Christmas. As the car sped on, I looked back. They were walking in the centre of the road after us. I had the uncanny feeling, in the warmth of the car, that neither of them was real. And then they were gone in the turn of the road. So far, however, no snow had fallen here, but the lights from the house, every window seemed to be illuminated, fell on the gravel drive. The lawns were glittering with frost. My aunt, however, knew what was coming. She welcomed me into the hall, beside the stuffed bear with uplifted arms and paws, on which lay a silver tray for visiting cards. Her first words gave me hope. Nicky, dear, it's lovely to see you. David will be pleased. And I really believe we shall have snow for Christmas Day. You've brought it with you. How clever you are. Now you must come at once and get really warm. You must be frozen. I hardly remembered my uncle's house. It's true I had been in it once before, but that was in summer. Then, of course, I had run all over the farms helping, as I thought, with the animals. I'd gone off with David often enough to the sea at Orford and Bordsey, and I knew of the merman who had, years ago, come out of the sea and stayed a while at Orford itself. He had been rather a pet with the inhabitants, until, one night, he had slipped away again across the marshes to the shore. It was said that the fact that the local vicar made him go to church, and that he could not bear the long sermons he was forced to listen to any longer, decided him to leave. From my own experience of church... I didn't blame him. David and I had also explored the old castle keep and the numerous Martello towers along the coast. What I did remember, however, was that the farmhouse was a tall and impressive Queen Anne house, that it had many rooms from the huge drawing-room, the study, the dining-room, to the bedrooms and attics, the maid-servants. You have to remember that this was in the old-fashioned days of 1922, when servants were still kept lived in these attics and went down the back stairs to the kitchen and sculleries, pantries and dairies. The first time I had been ten years old. Even so, I was conscious of the warmth and comfort of real wealth, even if farming was in a bad state, especially in East Anglia, though it was to get even worse later. The point was that my uncle did not depend on his farms for his income. That came from his business enterprises, I didn't know then what they were. Uh, truth to tell, I didn't care. All I knew was that it, Scarlet's it was called, with its endless acres, its workmen and farmers, was to me a wonderful playground, and that David was a wonderful companion, making up new adventures each day and telling the most absurd lies each night as we lay in bed in his bedroom on the first floor, overlooking the woods back into the heart of Suffolk. This evening... Four nights before Christmas, 1922, what I remembered of the house was quite changed. The interior was alight with welcome. Whatever was to happen outside, in the house, there was safety and gaiety. The staircase was festooned with branches of green holly and ivy. Paper chains and Chinese lanterns alternated with bunches of mistletoe, 
and the sideboard groaned under the weight of fruit and nuts. Furthermore, the house seemed full of servants. It didn't take much intelligence to sense all the other good things, plum puddings, mince pies, York hams that Mrs. Horsley, the cook, had up her sleeve for Christmas Day itself. While I was warming myself before the huge log fire in the drawing-room, my uncle came in. He was a short man, thick-set, rather Dickensian. He was smoking a cigar, and his first remark was what I should have expected of him. He always spoke in a ponderous manner, weighing his words as if everything he said was of the utmost importance. Now, of course, when I look back at him, it's easy to see him at the head of a boardroom table or deciding the fate of the companies under his command. But then he was a person I should not have cared to cross. After I had stood up and thanked him for asking me to come to stay, he shook hands with me in a formal manner and went on. I regret, Nicholas, he would never have dreamed of calling me Nicky, I regret very much the holly this year has few, I might almost say, no berries. And Christmas, you'll agree, depends largely for its full effect on red holly berries. Actually, I would have thought, and did even then, that it was brandy which really made Christmas for him. Neither did I dare to tell him that I had seen two people emerge from Staverton Forest so near his property with buried holly in their hands. He might have sacked one of his employees for not knowing the right place to go. And snow, uncle? I exclaimed, catching sight of my cousin David coming down the stairs. It was snowing a little in London. Surely it'll come this way soon. Your aunt, my uncle said, who knows all about winds and weather, seems to think it will. She's making preparations for it too. And with that, he walked out of the room, and no doubt, thinking that he had done all that could be expected of him towards a nephew of fifteen, shut himself in his study. I suppose it was just after eleven that we went to bed that first night. I was to sleep in David's room. We were hardly undressed when he said excitedly, You on, Nick? I had no idea what he was talking about, but I was not going to show myself a coward in front of him. Uh, Yes, of course. What do you mean? You haven't been here at a Christmas before, have you? Well, we're going to raid the servants, the young ones at least. He was laughing and rolling up one long football stocking into a ball and thrusting it into the foot of another, making a fairly soft, primitive club. But you might hurt someone with that, I said. Nonsense, Nick. He threw the club across the bed to me. It'll only give them a fright. Couldn't hurt them. He smiled in what I thought was a rather nasty manner and brought his wadded stocking down with a thump on the bed. We do this every year, he went on. What's more, they'll be expecting us, and there's generally some chap from school staying... None of them could come this year, though. I felt his contempt for me as a substitute. He banged the waddy, as he called it, down on the bed again. He laughed once more. We'll have to be careful we don't get hurt ourselves. Although it seemed silly to me, I followed him onto the dark landing. He flashed the torch, ran up the attic stairs silently, and stood outside the second door on the right of the corridor. We don't have to worry about old Horsley, the cook. She's snoring her head off at the end of the corridor. Anyway, she never wakes up. He turned to me and whispered. We burst in and run straight across the room, lashing out with our waddies and then out again like a whirlwind. Don't waste any time once we're inside. I stood shivering outside the door in pyjamas and dressing gown, excited at the adventure and wrought up by David's mood. As he burst open the door, the light went on. Far from us, just running across the room, delivering a few well-aimed blows and out again, 
we were taken entirely by surprise. The maids were waiting for us, but so great was our impetus that we were amongst the three of them before we could stop. The noise of laughter and Davy's war whoops must have been terrific. I felt my club wrenched from my hand. I was tripped and fell across the bed. The lights suddenly went out and I felt myself firmly held down. I had no idea what happened to David or what was to happen to me. All I now really remember, because it was the first time it had happened to me, was that when the lights went on again, Helen, one of the housemaids, was holding me down and laughing at me. I was vaguely aware of my uncle shouting at us from below to be quiet. I tried to get up from Helen's bed, but I was too firmly held. Indeed, this was David's error of tactics. He forgot that all the maids had to do was to get hold of our arms and we would be helpless to wield our weapons. Oh no, Master Nicholas, Helen was saying as I heard my uncle roar again. You've lost the battle and you'll have to pay. Like this. I felt her hot lips on mine. She kissed me three times before she released me. Sweet, gentle kisses. Now go, she said, taking away the lovely warmth of her arms. And happy Christmas to you. I remember I ran out of their bedroom, between the other two beds, with all of them laughing, my face burning. The whole episode, it shows you the kind of escapade that David got up to, had hardly taken more than ten minutes. Nevertheless, even now, I cannot forget Helen's face that night, and the warmth of her kisses. Perhaps I would have forgotten, if the snow had not come. And while we were asleep, it did come. No one heard it, no one was kept awake by its coming, but when I looked out of the bedroom window before dressing to go down for breakfast, there it was. The miracle which had begun at Liverpool Street Station was now clear to us all. I was caught up in the wonder of it and hardly heard David call out, Hurry up, Nick, and get dressed. Father's driving us over to Orlick's farm to get the turkey, and I bet we'll be able to toboggan. It's colossally thick. I did dress quickly. No doubt the smell of bacon and eggs coming up from the dining room would have hurried me anyway. I sat down between David and my aunt, and Helen brought me a plate of beautiful breakfast. She was smiling at me, as if we shared a secret. I suppose, in a rather schoolboy manner, I had fallen in love with her. The snow was still a wonder when we got into the car, the very suddenness of its coming, as it were, over the fields and woods behind the house, the amazing difference its coming made to everything, the joy of living inside a house and being able to run out into a world of icing sugar, made its arrival the supreme Christmas present. To me, this landscape of gleaming white increased the mysteriousness of the countryside. It did more, now that I was actually out in it. It frightened me. For it was while my uncle was interviewing Andrews, his tenant at Orlick's farm, and examining the fallen roof of one of the barns, that David and I first got out into this whiteness. I was suddenly lost. I see that now that this vast expanse of white had torn away the edges of my familiar world. Where before I knew my way about, now everything, the fields, the trees, the church, even the cottages on my uncle's estate, was strange and terrifying. Every landmark changed. David had, of course, already formed one of his mad schemes. The snow didn't frighten him. He saw nothing at all strange in it. Only a phenomenon laid on for his special benefit. Only a natural event against which to pit his strength. He had the idea of pulling out into the untrodden snow the top half of the pigsty door and converting it into a toboggan. I went to help him lift it to where the field began to slope downwards to the valley below. 
Nothing could have made me tell him of my fears. In fact, I was rather proud that he considered me capable of helping him. The battle we had lost the night before was never mentioned. You sit in front, Nick, he said, throwing himself in a professional manner, full length at the back. I'll steer. I'm an expert at it. Even as I did what he told me, I recalled how, last night, as we stood outside the maid's door, his confidence had led him into error. Our craft, imbued all at once with a life of its own, sprang across the snow silently and with gathering speed. For one crazy moment it turned and twisted like a top, until, either under its own weight or David's feet, it righted its course. We shot downhill at what seemed to me a terrific speed. We were alone, cruising on a white sea, a vast opalescent ocean, with land before us in the shape of a gate opening between two ends of a hedge. Cold air was tearing into my lungs. My whole body was ecstatic with the cold and the fright of speed. I frantically grasped the iron ring used to open the door when it was in place. In a mad dream of pleasure and terror, I heard David's voice giving the command, as it were, from the bridge. I'm going to steer through the gate. Don't move. Hold on and keep your feet in. The sun, low over the approaching hedge, was burning with one great eye at me. The frail craft that we were adrift upon tore across the snow and, with an immense surge of power, drilled its way through the hedge opening, through the massive banks of hedge snow, shooting up the far hill, came to a stop. It was then that I felt the pain in my leg and the terror in my mind. Of the two, the terror was the worst. I bit back a cry. David was already off the wooden door and preparing to drag it back up the hill for a second ride. He looked at me where I was still lying in the snow. Hey, he said contemptuously, get up, Nick. Help me pull this thing to the top again. I'll show you something even better. I was astonished that he could be so calm that he made no reference to what I had seen, for surely he must have seen it too. I, I can't, David, I said. I'm afraid I can't. It's my leg. Something happened when we shot through the gate. For one brief moment I saw the look of anger on his face, and then either from the sight of so much blood on the snow or because of the sharpness of the pain, I fainted. I gather, because David told me afterwards that I called out to him, Get help for Helen. She's by the gate. I don't remember being taken back to my uncle's house. David told me that they, my uncle and Andrews from the farm, carried me to the car. And it turned out that I hadn't broken my leg after all. There must have been an iron spike on the gate concealed by the snow, and it had ripped a long, deep wound in my calf as we shot through. It bled profusely. My aunt's doctor came and put in twelve stitches. But when I awoke in bed in one of the guest rooms, not in David's, warm and protected, it was not the accident to my leg which worried me. It was what had happened to Helen. She was lying against the hedge as we rushed through, a widening pool of blood issuing from her head and matting her hair. Her eyes were staring as if she were appealing to me for help. She was wearing a thin summer dress. In the short time I saw her, I was not only horrified by her accident, but also by the fact that she was out in this cold weather with no coat on. She must have been walking across the field, though why, when she would have had more than her share of work back at the house with everyone so busy, and slipped in some way and hit her head on the same iron projection which had ripped open the calf of my leg, 
She, like me, would have fainted from loss of blood. But now, here, in bed, I knew with a certainty I could not deny that Helen was dead, that help did not come in time to save her. I had expected something horrible to happen. I was convinced that this miracle of snow, which had so excited me when I could look at it from the house or the car, was malevolent. The unnaturalness of it, to one who was not used to it, was frightening. It, the snow, did not want me out in it. I was uneasy the moment I went into it with David. Unlike him, I was not master of every situation, nor was I able, as he was, to create situations which I could command. He would never have felt that something was hidden in this all-obscuring white blanket, suffocating waiting to rush out at him in the same way that an open door at the head of a dark staircase may conceal something ready to spring out at your approach. I can explain it in no other way, but from the second the toboggan began to rush downhill, I saw the features of this threat rushing up to meet me as I was rushing to meet it. And then there was no stopping. And indeed I had been right, for here I lay in bed, when I should have been enjoying the final preparations for Christmas. And Helen was dead. I was, too, acutely embarrassed at being such a nuisance. I almost wept at the thought that by my ineffectiveness, or stupidity, as David would have called it, I was spoiling Christmas for everyone else. I didn't know that my aunt paid me several visits before I came out of the anaesthetic, but she was beside me when I did. Is it very painful, Nicky dear? she asked. Because if so, the doctor says that you can have a pill to ease it. No, Aunt Amy. I was propped up on pillows, and I dare say I looked white and wan. I put out my hand and touched hers, as if, by so doing, I could grasp her protection. For this was the whole point of what had happened. The pain in my leg did not matter. I wasn't going to let her think that I couldn't stand it. But please, I asked, did they get to Helen in time? Was she still alive? My aunt smiled. She must have thought that I was still wandering under the effects of the anaesthetic. Helen, dear, there's nothing wrong with Helen. At least I hope not. We depend on her a great deal at a time like this. She's a good girl. But she was there in the snow. I saw her. She'd had an accident. She'd hit her head. Where, dear? By the gate. Just as we rushed through, it was horrible. She was lying there in a pool of blood. Did Uncle manage to save her? I suppose what I was saying must have sounded melodramatic to my aunt. She smiled again and pulled the sheets up to my chin. Nicky, you're not to worry about such things. You've been dreaming. A nasty dream, I agree. But when one hurts oneself and loses a lot of blood as you have, and then had an anaesthetic, you do have funny dreams. She got up from the bed. All you have to do is get strong again so that we can have you with us on Christmas Day. But, Aunt, I did see her, I did, and she was hurt. Well, we can soon prove it was all a dream, my dear. Besides, weren't you and David up in the maid's room last night? You made a great deal of noise, and I'm not sure that I approve of it at all. I suddenly remembered how Helen had held me then, and the warmth of her arms. Now she was dead. I couldn't hold back my tears. It was obvious that my aunt thought me too weak to be told the truth. I'll send her up with a cup of cocoa, she said. That'll do you good, you see. As she shut the door, I don't think I expected to see Helen come in, a kind of resuscitated corpse, 
In my still fuddled state, I thought my aunt too was playing a macabre joke on me. It must have been ten minutes later that I heard the knock on the bedroom door. I shrank back into the bedclothes with fear. Helen came in carrying a tray. I must have stared at her in my fright. Master Nicholas, she laughed. Whatever's the matter? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. She put the tray down beside my bed as I gasped out. Is it really you, Helen? Of course it is, Master Nicholas. Here, take my hand. You'll soon find out. I did take her hand. It was warm and strong. She was laughing as she had laughed the night before. There, she said. I'm flesh and blood, aren't I? But, but, I stammered out, realising that what my aunt had said was true. It was all a dream. I had not seen Helen in the snow, covered with blood, dead. She was very much alive. But nothing, she said. You hurry up and get that leg well again, or Christmas will be spoiled. And hey, let go my hand. I've work to do, you know. Can't lie about in bed all day like some I know. Helen, I asked, Helen, it was last night David and I played that silly joke, wasn't it? It was very silly too, since we knew all about it and expected you. And you did kiss me, didn't you? Three times. Well, Master Nicholas, that was all a bit of fun really, wasn't it? I noticed that she was blushing. Then I begged, leaning towards her, kiss me once again. It's important to me. She patted my hand gently. Whatever next, she laughed. Just suppose your aunt was to come in while we're at it. She won't, I said, and even if she did, I think she'd understand. Well, she laughed again, knowing nothing of my reasons for asking her to kiss me. If it'll make you better quickly, then, here. She leaned over and kissed me as warmly as she had the night before. When she had gone, I closed my eyes. So, after all, it was only hallucination. What still worried me, however, was the strangeness of the occurrence and why I should have dreamed that I saw something in the snow that wasn't there, the semblance of Helen, dead, because my life up to then had been completely normal. I was a normal boy who often trembled in mock fear of the supernatural, because for all my aunt said, for all Helen's kiss, I was not deceived. I knew that I had seen her in the snow as the iron cut into my leg. Like any other boy, I expected ghost stories at Christmas. That was the time for them. What I had not expected, and now feared, was that such things should actually become real, could come out of some secret place, and threaten every thread of normal life. I was convinced, as I sipped the cocoa Helen had brought me, that for a moment, in the snow, out there, I had touched the rim of another hidden world, which had nothing to do with such things as school life, holidays, friendship. I was beginning to see, in a very immature way, that there were other realities beneath the life I lived so unthinkingly. I hardly heard my aunt say when she came to visit me again, You know what, Nicky? The snow isn't going to last long. I'm so sorry. The wind has changed back to the south. Far from missing any festivities, I became what my uncle, in his ponderous way, called the centre of interest. He even went so far as to suggest that I was a bit of a hero, and David himself was almost, but not quite, put in the shade. As I fell asleep the night before, when my aunt left me with her weather predictions, the house was full of noise. I heard my uncle go to the front door and invite inside the company of waits who were doing their best with Noel. 
David told me that his father had brewed a special bowl of punch for them. Two female cousins had arrived, and already a dance for New Year's Eve was being talked about. In the excitement of presents, the Christmas tree, the huge turkey which my uncle carved with so much skill, I forgot what had happened two days ago, when Helen and the other maids were ushered in by Mrs. Horsley to drink the health of the company, I no longer worried about what I had thought I had seen. Time, as always on Christmas Day when I was young, passed so swiftly that I hardly noticed it. Almost before I realised it, my aunt was ordering me back to bed. My uncle and David carried me upstairs. I fell asleep at once. It shows what a normal kind of boy I was, for it never occurred to me that I should have any further bad dreams. When I woke, I lay for some minutes listening. Something was beating against the window panes. I was conscious, too, that something was missing, and yet at the same time I was filled with an amazing, overwhelming happiness. I looked at the chest of drawers where the presents I had been given were spread out like a shop window. But the explanation of my happiness was not there. It was some greater miracle. I got up and with great care put my injured leg to the floor. I could walk haltingly clutching the edge of the table. I drew myself to the window. I caught my breath at the sight which met my eyes, for magically it seemed the snow had disappeared, and the noise I had heard was rain. A warm wind was blowing, everything, the stables, the church, the chimney pots of the cottages, the trees themselves were clearly outlined under the dawn light. My aunt had been right, as if someone had pulled off a white dust sheet from a room full of furniture, the countryside was again visible. Now there was nowhere for anything to lurk, no spot so obscured by snow that it could hold a threat. Once again the world was familiar and safe. I pulled open the window and leaned out into the warm rain which you sometimes get in late December. I watched a curl of smoke rise from a cottage chimney, Someone had lighted a fire. Christmas, when nothing really bad could happen, had even defeated the snow itself. By the middle of January I was back in Cornwall. I spent the next two Christmases with my parents who had returned from the States. In fact, one Christmas day it was so warm that I bathed in Trianion Bay just below our house. I hardly remembered the contrast from the Christmas of 1922. Now it was the summer term of 1924, I was beginning to enjoy school and had recently been made a prefect. Probably, as I was seventeen and already thinking of following David to Oxford, not before time, I think it was a Thursday, in the middle of July, when Thompson, the head of my house and a great friend, called out to me as we passed in the long study corridor. See, your uncle's got his name in the telegraph. What do you mean? Well, he laughed and walked on, seems he's been killing off his maids. I ran to the papers, which were always laid out on the table in the common room. There it was, on the front page. I recognised the picture at once. I had seen it before, though then snow covered that particular field. And although the photograph did not show much of her face, I knew at once that it was Helen. I recognised the summer dress she was wearing as she lay beside the gate. In death, she was that small, woebegone figure I had seen in the snow over two years ago. The body of Helen Simpson, I read, unable to repress my shivering, holding on to the table tightly 
so vivid were the pictures of what I had once seen in the snow. A maidservant in the household of Sir Thomas May, the financier, was found at about eleven o'clock yesterday morning beside a gate at Orlick's farm, owned by Sir Thomas, by his tenant, Mr. James Andrews. A farmhand, assumed to be her lover, has been arrested and charged with her murder. The police are anxious to interview a boy of about fifteen, who Mr. Andrews says ran off as he approached the body of the girl. So that was A Fall of Snow by James Turner. Published in Staircase to the Sea in 1974, James Ernest Turner was born in Footscray in Kent in 1909. After attending the University of Oxford, he trained as a gardener, and in 1947 leased a piece of land in Norfolk to work as a The land in question was the site of the former Borley Rectory, dubbed the most haunted house in England and the location of multiple reported ghost sightings and instances of poltergeist activity. Whilst living there, Turner and his wife Lucy several unexplained phenomena, and Turner was involved in excavations at the site of Borley Church, which uncovered bones buried under the altar. Turner had some success in the early 1940s as a poet, and published a number of novels throughout the 60s, he also wrote a book about Borley and edited the fourth ghost book, part of a series established by Lady Cynthia Asquith in the 1920s. A Fall of Snow was published in his short story collection Staircase to the Sea the year before his death in Despite his publication long after the golden age of the ghost story in the late 19th and early 20th century, it has a feel of this earlier time and is extremely effective. And who wrote that was Tanya Kirk. Did Tanya Kirk write that well? Because Tanya Kirk edited this collection called Sunless Solstice, Strange Christmas Tales for the Longest Nights. And you may not know, but you may know, that the British Library has been uh, tales of the weird little nice little paperbacks. And I think I said this in a previous thing. They they are um, finding all these um, stories they have in their collection and putting them together, some undiscovered or forgotten and in some cases quite well Hickman in this story in this collection rather uh, and so it, it's pretty good they're a lovely set and they're sort of very collectible so and the, the 8.99 oh, I got them for 99 and what happens is I go to Grassmere on the Monday and I usually to uh, Sam Reed's bookshop there and I don't need any more books because I have piles of them. But they have these they have these collections and oh I think, oh well I'll just I'll just get a few because you never know. They could go out of print, couldn't they? And this is always my big worry with um books that that justifies me buying them. Hmm, one wonders, doesn't one? So I she did uh, Tanya Kirk has been editing them. She isn't the only one, Lucy Evans. And they are curators in the printed heritage collections team at the British Library. And it says Primarily with 18th and 19th century books and curated the children's literature exhibition, Marvellous and Mischievous. Tanya is lead curator for the period 1601-1900. She co-curated the exhibition Terror and Wonder, the Gothic Imagination, and has edited collections Spirits of the Season and Chill Tidings. Now, I don't think I've got... I've got this one, Chill Tidings. I don't... I'm not sure I've got Spirits of the Season, so I must go out and buy it. And uh, this uh, Sunless Solstice I've got. 
I've got chill tidings as well. So I've already done that, haven't we? So there we are. Now, I um, the introduction makes me spark off loads of things. It reminded me of Raymond Briggs's The Snowman, particularly the animated version, which, of course, I don't know if you still watch it at Christmas, but I particularly like the 1980s version. 1980s David Bowie going up to the loft of that uh, and the attic of that old house and finding his scarf, his snowman scarf. Bowie was really good. We went to um, a David Bowie tribute band. We've seen two David Bowie tribute bands recently. And uh, genius that man was. They didn't play any of his latest stuff from Lazarus and Dark Star, but they still had loads of the great, the great good ones. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, sadly missed Mr. Bowie. Um, Rem Briggs, too, passed away this year. Uh, he, he was a grumpy old fella, wasn't he? But he that is ma- utterly magical. And there are certain traditions I like to keep to. One is watching the BBC version of The Box of Delights by John Macefield. Do you remember I started to do um, uh, The Midnight Folk by John Macefield, but had of interest. No accounting for taste. But, um, yeah, I'll probably watch that and... I what else? I listen to. I have a collection of Christmas uh, carols and stories, some by the Albion Band, and there's also Mike Oldfield's on horseback, which isn't particularly Christmas to me and my kids. Um, we listen to that. So they're all all these uh, Christmas traditions. I miss the days when the girls were young, when we used to at Christmas have a Harry Potter to go out. I never read any of the books, but I used to like the movies, particularly when I went with my kids because they were delighted by them. Christmas. By the time you hear this, it will be. In December, it's the back end of November now and rainy. And, of course, certainly where I live on the west coast of the the main island of Britain, it's it's primarily not even that cold, really. I mean, it is pretty chilly, but uh, it doesn't freeze that often. In fact, much less than it used to, I remember. But perhaps I'm remembering when I lived in other parts of the country because when I lived in mid-Wales, which was pretty much in the centre of the island, and even London... And places like Edinburgh and Hexham, where I've spent time, very cold on the east side. But on the west side, wet and warm usually. So rarely do we get, um, and I've lived a lot of my life by the sea, so rarely do I get a Christmas, a Christmas, Christmassy Christmas with snow. But there we are. But maybe this year, but maybe not, who knows. But you never know, do you? Um, the other thing, this is set in Suffolk. And I have a story to say about Suffolk. You may know I'm actually doing another website and about so-called true hauntings, and I haven't written anything about Borley, which is in Essex, although I visited the Borley site when I used to do my ghost tours. And also, I stayed a couple of times at the Crown in Bilderston in Suffolk, which is a pub, which is... I remember, I maybe said this on the podcast, because I've done so... I've done like 200-plus episodes, so I'm bound to repeat myself, particularly as I'm getting on in years because that's what happens, of course, you repeat yourself. Or is it? Or maybe it's just me. But anyway, so the crown at Bilderston, um, and it was red hot, it was June, it was really, really hot. And I stayed in one of the rooms, and I'd gone to bed, I was tired, we'd been round and round having ghost tours and stuff, and historical, this, that, and the other. Very pretty villages around that part of the world, with all that, and lavender and all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's famous for its lavender, to be honest. Anyway, the crown of Bilderston. So I went, I woke in the middle of the night and I remember thinking, oh, this is freezing. And, but didn't associate it with anything supernatural. Curled round, pulled the duvet around myself and went back to sleep. In the morning, it was warm again because it was stifling. So it had been stifling hot 
all that time and in the middle of the night it had dropped down to a very cold level so lots of ghosts in Suffolk so um, yeah come and join me for my ghost tour anyway there we are I was reading that from a print copy, of course, so you may have caught some of the rustling of the pages. The other noises you may have caught are, I should say, where I record this in our house. I'm up at the top on the third floor. There are dormer windows, of when we call them Velux windows, in the, in the roof space. So it isn't dark, but it's not insulated. So in the summer, it's boiling hot up here, and I have to sit and record... I don't. You probably don't want to. Don't want that image in your in your head. But uh, yeah, it's true. And in the winter now, I'm freezing cold, so I go down after a day up here, and I'm kind of shivering. But because it's not insulated, there's a scrapyard. You know where they get metal and they grind it up. So during the day, the scrap man is at work, and that stops me. Um, you may sometimes catch his scrap metal work in the background. And then on the weekend, which it is now, it's a Saturday. There's a football pitch to you. So, uh, well, I say to you, to to the American people who are listening, but uh, to everybody else, it's football. So, yeah, and they they get very excited to make a noise, so you may hear that. And then, of course, when it rains, I I do some kind of collection noises, and I put them in from recordings, but these are real rain noises. And so you may kind of, I think, I'm doing a, a long... Um, a Christmas story. I'm doing the chimes by Dickens, which is quite a long story. Not as long as a Christmas Carol, which I've obviously done. It's another of his Christmas stories. Eh, probably not as good, to be fair. But it's it's quite political actually. But it started to rain in the middle of that, and I thought, oh no, I've got to stop. But it's really long. Now I'm doing that as a commission for Cosimo Medici. He knows who he is, and I I still not sure I'm Michelangelo. But uh, Cosimo, thank you for the commission. So that's going to come out either Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. I'm going to do, I've done one of my own Christmas stories. We're doing a live Christmas story, Christmas ghost stories. This is a Christmas ghost story I've done. And I have a particular formula for Christmas ghost stories, which is I can write some, I try and write some pretty horrific stories sometimes that are scary. But this one, my Christmas bit whimsical because to me christmas is not a time for terror mr james may disagree and you know we should take his advice but i don't so uh you know it's it's um it's a time for nice things so this is a very whimsical two i've got a short one called the piano which i did last year which i don't think i broadcast on the on the podcast and this one's going to be called the ghost of christmas past or possibly the ghost of christmas's past because I'm getting together a new collection, um, slow but surely, which will come out as a book. I don't know what else I've got to tell you. There'll probably be something when I finish this. Anyway, I hope you're all well. And I hope um, I particularly like this part of the winter. There's not much of the year I don't like. Uh, I like when the snowdrops come back in at the end of January. And then we get the crocuses in February. And I watch the spring flowers, the, the daffodils and the celandine in the woods as the, as the year wakes up again. I love that. I love spring, May time. Autumn, which we we had a funny autumn this year. It, it Some days were winter and then the next day was autumn, you know, and that was lovely. And then I love this build up to the turn of the year, to the solstice and the new year. And I love it and just the feeling of it. But then it goes very grim in January and February. Um, 
But let's not dwell on that because we've got a lot of nice things to look forward to. I hope you have too. Yeah, so I've bought a upgrade my gear, you know. So I've bought a Rode Procaster. That the voice went off because I was looking at it, which is a, a kind of a, a very super duper duper ish um, interface. Not the best, 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 but it's better than what I had. The only problem was I'm struggling. With, I had um, an old DBX strip which was bigger and old-fashioned but it had a good noise gate on it and i thought that this road procaster would have a better one so but i i, I can hear the gate opening and closing and you maybe can too still not sure about the settings of that um i hope i hope it doesn't mean i've spent more money to end up in a worse position but that wouldn't be the first time in my life i've done that so anyway 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 beautiful beautiful love 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 hope you're all well um yeah, just enjoy yourselves. That's my call to action. You stay happy, okay? And uh, we'll, I'll speak to you soon.
invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.